Welcome to Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. We are continuing our conversation that we started earlier this season on The White Lotus, specifically White Lotus Season 2. The White Lotus Season 1 was almost like an appetizer leading mm-hmm. into the second season. In some ways, I think the first season may have been better. But the second season is set in this beautiful Sicilian resort, which provides a wonderful landscape for some really interesting male dynamics that I really think we can dig into here this week. Yeah, I I know it's a contentious season. A lot of people think it didn't live up to the first. I personally love season two way better. And I've talked to a few people who would agree with me. There's just so much more subtlety to be extracted from season two that I really, really have been looking forward to talking to you about this. I feel like it was straight up educational. Like I, for years have been trying to figure out how to get a full-time paying job as a pianist and now i know you only need to promise sexual favors to someone and then give them a drug which causes them to be sent to the hospital and then you know convince the management to give you a job like i mean really it's it's pretty straightforward i was going at it all wrong it's as straightforward as getting two italian prostitutes access to your room and credit card you just go up to the front desk and ask no questions asked it's just like of course this is what you want you know snl did that brilliant parody the black lotus that i encourage our listeners to go check out because it's basically all the plot points of white lotus season two being shot down in a hotel that just doesn't want to put up with any of that foolishness Again, continuing our discussion of the first season, that I think there's a lot of growth that goes on amongst the characters, but we also get some glimpses into some very different dynamics. Like, the first season was perhaps a little bit more about privilege and about sort of a subtle racism, almost, that permeated many things that were going on, which we talked about. And I feel like the second season is pretty much about these almost like sexual dynamics that exist. Not necessarily just between between men and women, but also from a gender perspective about how people treat each other, about how people interact with each other, which is pretty revealing. And yes, it is still set in a very privileged setting in a hotel that I honestly could not figure out what like the geography of this hotel was. Like, it didn't seem to be consistent. Sometimes there was a beach club. Sometimes the beach club was next to the hotel. Sometimes it was quite some ways away. Sometimes there was a courtyard. There was, like, a church in the middle of the place. I was super <laughs> confused by, like, what the layout of this property was supposed to be. Versus an amazing city like Milan, where you and I have both vacationed, where everything's just kind of built around that beautiful central plaza. And, of course... An Aperol Spritz bar. Yeah, so Zach and I were in Milan a number of years ago, and it was getting late. Maybe not late for Italian time, but it was late and hungry, and we're trying to find some place to go get a nibble and to go have a beverage. And we saw this beautiful bar that is right next to the Duomo in the gorgeous vintage shopping center, which is there. And we went there, and they only had two things that you could order. And it was either just straight champagne or Aperol spritzes. It ended up that this bar was an Aperol spritz bar. Yeah, and that's what we're drinking now and what they drink throughout the entirety of White Lotus Season 2 to a point where in a Speed Kills-like champagne tie-in, Aperol Mm -hmm. must have been sponsoring White Lotus Season 2 because those are in every shot that they're outside drinking. I feel like we're talking sufficiently about Speed Kills that we really should review it at some (laughs) point. 
But yeah, Italy was such a great setting and brought back so many great memories of our trip there. Mm-hmm. We had previously to Milan, we had been in Lake Como, where we both kind of discovered for two platonic friends might be a bit too romantic of a setting. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. So we got the heck out of there uh, and enjoyed our time in Milan uh, sufficiently. But yeah, I love season two for exactly the reasons you said. That concept of human sexuality and how it impacts our relationship, not just with those with whom we are in a sexual relationship with, but people on our peripherals too. The family dynamic, the friendship dynamic, it kind of is all intertwined. And I thought that this season did such a masterful job kind of extrapolating that out. So where do you want to begin? You know, I think I've been dying to talk to you about this, that F. Murray Abraham, Michael Imperioli, grandfather, father, son dynamic is so fascinating to watch on screen. I mean, pretty much you can put F. Murray Abraham in anything. I mean, watch it. So the fact that it was F. Murray Abraham just knocking it out of the park alongside we got Chrissy from The Sopranos and then his son, um, Albie. Also wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, And, and, you know, something nice to look at. (laughs) Not going to complain. And, you know, you see what is on the surface these very tired straight male stereotypes, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're they're womanizers. And even Albie, who is the quote woke millennial, he still has this like tortured relationship with women where he feels like he needs to save them and wants to control their agency. They all have these very what could be on the surface cookie cutter dynamics for a straight white male in film. But what I love so much about the season is it starts peeling back the layers and you start seeing why these men are like this, why they have such troubled relationships with women. And it really just felt like one of the first times I've seen on screen an actual sympathetic look at the generational harm that adultery, womanizing has caused, not just for the women involved, but for the men and the sons of those men too. Yeah, the show telegraphs that there's going to be something important about this very early on. There's an uncomfortable moment where LB sees the way that his grandfather is interacting with the women at the beach club. And, you know, he's like, oh, I'm just playing. Oh, I'm just... You know, it's just it's just the way I am. They all get it. And, Harmless and, old man. Yeah, and LB is so uncomfortable with the situation. And I mean, I've been in those situations, yeah. and it's super uncomfortable because you see how toxic it is. But at the same time, like, how do you have that conversation with someone who has been doing that their entire life right. and getting away with it? Right. And, you know, you've got the father kind of right in the middle there, the Michael Imperioli character, who is heartsick at his impending divorce from his wife, who at face value, he very clearly deeply loves, but who he has also embarrassed countless times by flagrantly cheating on her every chance he gets. And at first glance, a very unsympathetic character, but he decides to have that conversation with his father about his father's behavior and indeed about his own behavior towards the end of season two. And I'd actually love to play a clip of that and we can maybe just talk about what I think is some of the best writing I've seen on television. You can't really be surprised, can you? By what? That he's running around with an escort. What do you mean? You've normalized it for him. Like you normalized it for me. Oh, I never ran around with hookers. I don't run around with hookers either. Dom, didn't you run around with that exact hooker? You gave her the key to my room. You know the reason I am the way I am is because of you. 
<laughs> You're blaming me for your situation? That's rich. Do you think you are so discreet? Do you? I mean, how many nights did I hear mom cry herself to sleep? Get real. Everybody knew, Dad. Oh. Everybody knew. Everybody knew. We had a great marriage. Oh my God, you are deluded. You made her life hell my entire childhood. Do you have amnesia? If I made her life hell, why'd you stay with me? I have no idea. She didn't know any better. She was a, a martyr. I don't know. She loved me. She was a bitter woman. And she died a bitter woman. And she knew about everything you did. Believe me, you were just too self-involved to even notice that. Yeah, and you know what? I, I don't blame you for my situation, but I sure fucking could because you never showed me how to love a woman. You never showed me how to be intimate. You never showed me how to put others first. You always put yourself first, always. So I did the same thing. I loved your mother and she loved me. It's not that simple. Yes, it is. It's such a powerful scene. It really is, you know, and on one hand, you can kind of look at it as two people kind of deflecting and, and blaming somebody else for their problems. But I think what this is really getting to the heart of is maybe not our fathers, thankfully. Um, mm -hmm. Our dads, I believe, always faithful to our mothers. And I think we both benefited from that in terms of structure and safety. But so many men across so many generations saw a father who was unfaithful to his partner. And I think that that has warped the male perspective on relationships far worse than any toxic female traits that may be blamed for that. And when you get to this scene, and maybe it's a bit more transparent and honest than two people could really be in such a situation without, you know, tempers getting inflamed or whatever. You got to throw wine in someone's face. Yeah, it's, yeah. That's the way it works if TV has taught me anything. But, you know, the character of F. Murray Abraham, Bert, saying it is that simple. You know, Michael Imperial, it's not that simple, Dad. Yes, it is. And I think for a lot of men, that compartmentalization, that very male trait of compartmentalizing, I can love my wife and I can also cheat on her. And those two are completely separate deals where on a human soul level, of course it isn't. But I think that that's been the masculine archetype for a lot of marriages for many, many, many years. And I just love the delicacy that that scene takes to approach it. Do you think that there's almost like a point of pride amongst some men that they can get away with it? That they are proud that they feel like they get away with it and that their ability in order to compartmentalize allows them to, in their eyes, be a better man in whatever like messed up way that... Absolutely. You know, there. this is not excusing any of that behavior because I believe if you make a promise to somebody... Be in a polyamorous relationship, right? Be, be in an open marriage if that's your thing. But if you make a promise that you won't do that to somebody and then you continually cheat on them, you're a piece of crap, period, end. But I do think that there's like a biological imperative a bit that's kind of wired into men. You know, we are trying to be fruitful and multiply. We are kind of hardwired to spread our DNA across many different diverse places. But that's also when the human population was 10,000 people trying to cross land bridges. Now in the modern era... I think we've got to kind of recognize that this little signal, this ego-driven signal that's telling us that it is our right and it is, you know, what real men do and a sign of status 
we need to reconcile with that because it's clearly caused so much damage, not just to our female partners or our male partners, but to our kids and our friends and the people around us. And I think the way you started this off talking about Elby and about his own dysfunctions, as it were, is very true here. Like, where is he going to get that role model with his father who is not only doing things that he shouldn't be, but also tries to project it entirely onto other people as well and not taking the responsibility until the very end of the season, actually, Mm -hmm. where he does start to own up for the things he does. And I think this conversation actually is a bit of a catalyst for that ultimately occurring. Yeah. But it is interesting to look at the behavioral impact and indeed the generational trauma for someone like Elby, who is set up to be very woke, very caring, and man, he's just making his own set of mistakes that do feel like they're rooted in this same generational dysfunction. Yeah, he's rightfully identified that his grandfather and his father have problematic attitudes towards women, but the pendulum has swung the other way with Alby, and now every woman is a victim. Every woman is somebody he needs to save, and it created the situation where he got preyed upon by a pretty masterful con artist. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons when I say season two is better. You just rarely see this kind of generational dynamic between men played out in such a condensed time frame. And I thought they did such a wonderful job. And if it was just that alone, I would be singing season two's praises. But then we've also got another male relationship dynamic that you and I have talked a lot about. Mm-hmm. This kind of toxic male frenemy between Cameron and Ethan. Yeah, that's really bad. Like, there's really nothing redeeming about that relationship between these two guys. And right. in fact, in many ways, I'm wondering still as to why they're on this trip why they are still spending time with each other. Like, is this a dominance type situation? Is it ingrained in certain people that they almost need to take some sort of abuse in this particular way? Interesting. There's no reason why Ethan needs to have gone on this trip with his college friend. There really isn't a good connection here. And I think he kind of realizes that from the start. He and uh, Aubrey Plaza are already having conversations. She gets it entirely. And it's fascinating how the show makes you initially think that she's the one who's being shrill Mm -hmm. about this. And yet she is dead right about it. And it's just a masterful bit of writing. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of those, again, so authentic how it it kind of paints that relationship that we've all either been a part of in our lives or or kind of witnessed. And speaking of authenticity, you're you're in the tech industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, These two guys are sculpted like Greek gods. I'm assuming that's just par for the course. Everybody, everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But beyond that realism and maybe some fake phallus work that plays into, I think, the second episode, it's fascinating to watch the little digs that Cameron, who at one time had the upper hand in the relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. he was the more confident one when they were roommates in college. Ethan was the quiet, you know, intellectual one. It's interesting to see that now that that power dynamic's flipped, now that Ethan's making really good money, Cameron's still doing those digs. And one of the things, we've talked about this in other seasons, there is an element to male friendships Busting each other's chops. Oh, yeah. You know, and I truly do have some great, 
great guy friends who it may have been a decade or more since either one of us said something truly nice to the other person. But it's all in good fun and there's a give and take. It's a push and pull where we see none of this with Ethan. He's not giving it back in equal measure to Cameron. Correct. He is just kind of taking it. It bothers him, but he allows it to happen. And I do see that all the time. You know, it, there's in media today, we hear a lot about toxic female friendships and how every female group has that one girl that everybody hates in the group, but they still take her along. And I think that this is a rather unexplored area of male culture. I think male culture has that too, where there's that guy that's just an a-hole, but that we kind of keep him around because maybe he can be the life of the party sometimes. Maybe he can get drugs or booze or women or whatever. He's but, a catalyst. I mean, use that word again yes, here. Yeah. Like, you know, you know these people who mm-hmm. just kind of make that happen. And clearly he was in college. And there's also a scene that I thought was really revealing too when, just to refresh our listeners' memory, Cameron boozing all day, doing drugs all night, decides to get some prostitutes for he and Ethan. Ethan does not want to partake, but there's this scene with them all on the couch making out where I don't know if you picked up on this, Cameron keeps kissing Ethan. And I thought that that was such a marvelous inclusion because I don't think Cameron is gay. I don't think Ethan is gay, but there's this interesting, again, power dynamic that I think is being flexed there where Cameron is kind of marking Ethan as one of his, one of his property. And I, I've seen this happen in straight male intimacy before. And, and for that kind of nuance to be included in this season, writer, creator, director, Mike White, I think really understands men on a very deep level to include just some of the finer touches like that. But I have a lot of respect for Ethan that when push comes to shove, he does demonstrate his own agency. Yes. And that, to me, makes this much more watchable. His decision not to sleep with the prostitute, for instance, or later on in the season. That's the level of nobility in White Lotus, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of true. But, like, he kind of knows why he has Cameron around. Mm -hmm. And he himself is able to draw that line. Now, in the end, that his marriage may be irrevocably broken. Right. Well, maybe, but there's usually a deeper issue at play that mm-hmm. that leads to that. And, you know, maybe it's better he's finding out sooner rather than later. Yeah, the ambiguity there of did Harper, I think is Aubrey Plaza's character's name, did Harper cheat on him? Did he cheat on Harper on that island walk? I like the ambiguity there because I do think that, you know, we were talking earlier about kind of serial philanderers. I do think that there's a difference between that and a big screw up. I was drunk, I was mad, I was emotional, it was a one-off thing. I don't think that that's the same thing. It's still bad. It's still a terrible thing to do to your partner. But it creates that interesting dynamic that, yeah, really makes you wonder what is the future of their relationship. So before we move on to the last fascinating male dynamic here. That we've been teasing out for several episodes now. Yes. But I do want to have a shout out here to the character of Valentina, who's played by Sabrina Impacciatore. The reason I want to call her out here in this discussion of masculinity is that I thought her story was very refreshing. We've seen a lot of representation in the last few years of male coming out stories and what that looks like. And kudos to the media for making this a more prevalent thing. Sometimes it's more overblown and the center point of a story. And in this case with Valentina, I think it's fascinating that we're seeing a female coming out story. Mm. And it's one that is happening in the midst of all the madness of this hotel. And I just thought that was such a refreshing take on that 
and obviously we're both men here, so I, you know I can't really vouch for the authenticity of this. But it was just so nice to see a lesbian coming out story that actually was very sweet in the end. Yeah. There was some clear manipulation that seemed to be applied by the prostitute slash pianist who... Which is how, uh, how our resident pianist Edgar Bergamot prefers to be called. But it's very clear that there's something much more tender between these women. Yeah. And just like we talked about with Quinn in the first season, it gave me something to kind of hold on to, that there was hope that the story of Valentina was the one that at the end of the story, this very uncomfortable woman to watch had become someone who I connected with deeply in the story. Yeah, and even as a straight male watching it, I really connected to her character too. It was so sweet. And the the powerful thing to me was she's a very unlikable character in the first episode. Mm -hmm. She's downright mean and rude to people. And, you know, as an outsider kind of watching some of my own friends come to terms with their sexuality, come out of the closet, you know, some of the less appealing traits that maybe they had prior to that moment disappeared. You know, that whole idea of not being authentic to yourself, I think, clearly really warp a person from the inside. In Valentina's case, it was, you know, being rude and bossy. In other people's case, it's being sad all the time, you know. And so to see that kind of transformation of, oh, I really don't like this character, to then understanding why it is that a lot of people probably don't like her and why that's a defense mechanism. And then, yeah, having her probably be the real heart of the show in the end is a wonderful character arc happening in the midst of all this other brilliant writing. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But now I think it is time that we talk about the most important character of the show. And, you know, actually, we never put a spoiler alert warning up at the front here, but I think it's okay if we do it now, right? Mm -hmm. This is fine. Okay. Uh, But sadly, this character dies in the end. And, you know, if it wasn't for the Valentina situation, I would have been completely wrecked by the death of Quentin who is, for all I can tell, a wonderful, upstanding, and honest citizen. (laughs) The gays that are famously trying to kill Jennifer Coolidge in both the series and in the many dance remixes that are happening right now. The ringleader, Quentin, played deliciously by Tom Hollander. So well. And we were talking about this kind of live as we were watching White Lotus Season 2. I'm pretty sure Quentin is Tom Ripley. It's quite probable, actually. Like Still in Italy. Mm-hmm. Still lavishly, gaudily decorating things with material goods, living way beyond his means. Mm-hmm. If you read Ripley's Game or even watch the amazing John Malkovich movie, like, this literally is his story. Yeah. He is still hanging around Europe in problematic relationships with people that always involve a certain level of deceit. And, like, his behavioral patterns are almost exactly those of Tom Ripley. Deep-rooted infatuations with unavailable straight men, surrounding yourself with problematic characters, being willing to kill just to continue to live this false identity that you've propped yourself up on. It has to be a sequel to The Talented Mr. Ripley. It's just too good not to be. Well, up to a point. The thing about Tom is he was too smart to get killed. Hmm. And I don't think the real Tom Ripley would have let Been himself... bested by Jennifer Coolidge? Yeah, although, uh, you know, maybe it's poetic justice, but <laughs> yeah. that's the one part of it that doesn't really line up. Because Tom, if nothing else, was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I really don't think he would have misinterpreted what was going on in that boat. I mean, but then again, I mean, let's face it. The man loved being on yachts. Wherever he went, people died on boats. Yep. I mean, multiple times is just kind of his M.O. 
he surrounded himself quite wisely with partygoers who had fantastic mustaches. And he had weird ties to the mafia that were really kind of never explained. I don't know. Just kind of there. But I loved that turn that the season took where you just assume that Jennifer Coolidge is being paranoid and out of touch like she has been in the previous season. Mm-hmm. And seeing that all come to fruition and that every one of her instincts was exactly correct is wonderful. And then to give her that moment where she gets the upper hand, she takes out an entire yacht full of the gay mafia mm-hmm. uh, o- only to die by her own clumsy hand is just pitch perfect. It really is. It's a wonderful way to end the season. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up our episode here then. want to thank everyone for listening. Certainly send us your suggestions on additional pop culture shows we should be talking about here from a literary guy's perspective. We've got our Instagram post up for this episode, so feel free to use that in order to start a conversation on the topic. So until next time, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.